This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Imagine yourself in darkness. You are deep underground, in a room sealed and secure. The air is still, like an attic closed too long. It is stuffy, and there is a hint of moisture, damp in the air. Take a breath, and you would find the atmosphere stale, musty, with just a hint of mould. You are standing in the burial chamber of King Tutankhamun. It is closed, undiscovered. Somehow, you can visit the room before archaeologists found it. In the darkness, you cannot see far. But what is visible seems haunting. The room is dominated by a wall of gold, a shrine that fills the hall and leaves little space to move. This shrine is decorated, covered in hieroglyphs and symbols of the gods. And if you could see within, you would find more of these structures, a series of shrines nested within each other. Behind you, the wall is stone, covered with plaster, it is hard to see in the cramped confines, but the wall seems to be yellow, like gold. On its surface, strange figures tell a tale of the afterlife, gods and kings, standing silent on the wall. By your feet, the floor space is cramped. Between the shrine and the wall, there are pieces of wood. They look like oars from a boat. A series of these oars lie end to end along the wall. Apparently, Somebody placed them here for Tutankhamun to steer his ship in the night. By your foot, there is a brick. Again, it bears the mark of hieroglyphs. Better not move unless you damage it. The brick, and many of the symbols in this room, seem to be magical, protective. They guard the deceased and warn against intruders. You, an invisible observer, are standing in the burial chamber, the room where Tutankhamun lies in slumber. The king is dead, mummified and buried. In many respects, this is Tutankhamun's home, one he has inhabited far, far longer than he ever lived on earth. Chances are you have seen this tomb, and these golden treasures, on TV, in documentaries, in books. Often, when we see them in the media, these treasures also have an audio dimension. Music, slow and haunting, plays over images of golden treasures. It happens all the time. But imagine, if you can, the tomb before its discovery. More importantly, imagine the silence. Beneath several metres of rock, surrounded by brick walls, shrines of wood and gold, a stone sarcophagus, the king's body lay in a sealed, silent chamber. With all that rock, any sounds from the outside must have been the faintest vibration, if they penetrated at all. So, for a moment, try picturing that golden face within its coffin, and strip away the music, strip away all sound. Imagine gazing on it in total, utter silence.
For 3,000 years, Tutankhamun rested in his tomb. The king's mummy, wrapped, decorated, and protected, slumbered within coffins and sarcophagi. Golden shrines surrounded the casket, and the burial chamber was sealed away, secluded from the outside world. Walls and doors blocked any passage, and corridors, full of rubble, concealed the entrance. In his chambers, the 19-year-old pharaoh enjoyed the slow sleep of death embalmed. Tutankhamun's soul, his ba and ka, were healthy and strong. The preservation of his mummy and the ritual items allowed the king to enjoy his afterlife. But recently, Tutankhamun's ka may have stirred. Beyond the tomb, people in the living world were speaking his name. For the first time in centuries, the king was a topic of discussion once again. From an ancient Egyptian perspective, Tutankhamun's memory was reviving. Perhaps the new attention would invigorate his soul. One day, the burial chamber stirred. Outside, there was a rumbling. Vibrations in the rock, caused by movement above. They resonated through the halls. The sound of digging and clearing may have penetrated the darkness, and dust, still for three millennia, might have shifted minutely. The ground echoed with the sounds of excavation. All of a sudden, one wall began to shake. The thud of hammer and chisel resounded. The top corner of a doorway began to tremble as someone battered at the wall. Dust and plaster flaked away, crumbling to the floor. And in the darkness of the tomb, the air began to stir. Outside, muffled voices whispered to one another. For Tutankhamun, the words were foreign. If his spirit could hear anything, it would be a blur of strange sounds. But the meaning was clear enough. Mortals, outsiders, had come to his tomb. Were they robbers or worshippers? Only time would tell. Chapter 6. The King of the Golden Hall The year was 1922. It was November 28th, a Tuesday. The tomb of King Tutankhamun lay open. Archaeologists had penetrated two chambers. The first, or antechamber, held chariots, couches, statues, and all good things for the young pharaoh's burial. Another chamber, the annex, was a kind of storeroom. It attached to one corner of the antechamber, and contained a medley, a chaos, of various items and objects. You have probably seen photos of these chambers. In black and white, or colourised, the outer rooms present a magnificent panoply. Treasures beyond your wildest imaginings crowd everywhere. One thing to remember is that these photos came later, days later. Official photography started when the excavation was ready to begin so things in the tomb had been tidied up, at least a little bit. And if you look at the north end of the antechamber, you will notice something strange. The northern wall was guarded by two statues, made of wood painted black and covered with gold. These sentinels stood by the wall. Between the statues, 
stones and plaster formed a door, a sealed entrance to another chamber. What was beyond this wall? Well, by the time the photos were taken, Howard Carter knew very well. Looking at these photos, one thing is clear. At the bottom of the wall, someone has piled reeds and a basket against the surface. That is weird. If the tomb was robbed but fixed, then who put that basket there? And why would they bother? Well, the basket and reeds hide a secret. A hole in the wall. That hole was made by robbers in ancient times, and then patched up. But at some point, Howard Carter reopened that hole. He and his companions had crawled through and seen what lay beyond. We know that Howard Carter and his friends entered the next chamber sometime in the first week. It is unclear when exactly, but I would say the most likely date is Tuesday, the 28th of November. That was the day of opening the tomb itself, officially, and it was the day before the government inspection. With that in mind, I suspect that the group entered this other chamber before that inspection. Otherwise, their deed, their entrance, would have been obvious. By going in early, ahead of the officials, they could have some privacy, and they could conceal what they had done. Why did they break through the wall and sneak in? Carter is well known for his caution and his scholarly approach to archaeology. Why would he do something so secretive? Well, firstly, Carter was allowed to do this. As part of his concession, the government permit to excavate, Carter and his team had the first right to enter any tomb they discovered. In other words, if the excavator found a monument, they had permission, legally, to enter it at their leisure. So Howard Carter and his patron, Lord Carnarvon, probably viewed this as their right. They had found the tomb. They could explore the chambers at their discretion. That may not be an excuse, but it is an important bit of context. For these people, their permit gave them certain rights, and it's possible they viewed the burial chamber as part of that right. Secondly, I suspect the group were too excited to wait. The long years of excavation had finally paid off. This tomb was far beyond their expectations. And if there was more, well, how could they resist? They weren't going to damage anything, they just wanted to look. The ancient robbers had already made a hole. Why not use that to inspect what lay beyond? You can imagine this justification going through their head. The hole was there. Robbers had clearly gone through the wall before. What if they had stolen everything? What if this hidden chamber was actually empty, ransacked by thieves? Surely a responsible scientist should investigate. Make sure the room held something. Anything. At the very least, they should check. That is my personal guess at what went through their minds. Whatever their exact motivations, Carter and his companions did enter the burial chamber. They broke open that hole in the wall, they snuck through, and they did so in secret before anyone knew. Was it right for them to do this? I leave that to you. Either way, they did it. The group entered the chamber, and they saw the burial of the king. As they did so, Howard Carter repeated his achievement of two days before. He was the first person to see these things in over 3,000 years. What did he find? As Howard Carter entered the next chamber, 
he faced a wall of metal. It glittered in yellow and blue. This wall was a shrine, one of four structures that filled the space. The shrines were wood, with gold overlay and precious stones. Looking at these shrines, Carter knew what he had found. The discovery of shrines was essentially confirmation. Inside, the archaeologist could expect to find King Tutankhamun himself. The body would be mummified and secure, and he should be lying in state. Reflecting on this, Carter later spoke of his thoughts. Quote, We had penetrated two chambers, but when we came to a golden shrine with doors closed and sealed, we realised that we were in the presence of the dead king. We were to witness a spectacle such as no other man in our times had been privileged to see. The shrines are huge, they are intricate, and they bear many different texts and images. I could probably do an entire episode just about these objects. Sadly, there is no time. So we will do a quick overview and get the idea. The shrines are beautiful, and they give us details of ancient Egyptian beliefs. Looking at these objects, we can get a sense of Tutankhamun's eternal home. Let's explore. The first shrine, the largest, was impressive. Five meters long and three meters wide, or 17 feet by 11 feet. It was nearly three meters tall, nine feet. It filled the burial chamber, leaving a tiny space at the sides and the ceiling. This structure dominated the room, and anyone exploring had to edge their way along, past the walls and the doors. The first shrine is kind of a miniature house. The shrine is made of wood, covered with gold and faience. The gold is yellow, the faience is blue, so there is a nice contrast. From the first glance, the shrine is a colourful, evocative piece of work. The first shrine is built like a pavilion, a kind of tent or kiosk. Specifically, it looks like a said festival tent. What does that mean? Well, the said festival was a royal celebration, a great ceremony for the king. The said festival would renew a pharaoh's power, his authority, his life, and it gave him many more years of rule. In other words, this said festival shrine would honour Tutankhamun as an eternal king. Lying inside, he could live forever and enjoy many celebrations as a pharaoh of Egypt. So the design of this shrine has a reflection on real-world concerns. It's also just a cool shape. The walls of this shrine are covered in symbols related to the gods. The most important are the Jed Pillar of Osiris, which symbolizes eternity. Also the Teat Ribbon of Isis, that gives protection and security. So the shrine bears symbols of two great deities, Isis the Mother, and Osiris, King of the Dead. This immortal, all-powerful couple would guarantee the safety of the king. From the very start, Tutankhamun's shrines give him protection. At the same time, this shrine presents Tutankhamun himself as a guardian. Hieroglyphs on the walls tell us about the pharaoh's power. In one text, Tutankhamun offers praise to the great gods, especially the sun god, Ra. As a taste, 
Here is one short passage. Quote, King Nebkeparura, Tutankhamun, says, A greeting to you, Ra, who resides in your shrine, the one who rises while rising, who shines while shining, who binds millions at your will, the one who turns your face towards humanity. All of your adversaries are annihilated by this Osiris, the King Tutankhamun. He, the king, will come down from the sky, he will come up from the earth, he washes in the blood, he wades in the red. Osiris, King Nebkeparura, attacks your adversaries in this barge that belongs to his father, Ra. This is Horus, this is Osiris, King Nebkeparura, living forever. End quote. If that sounded complicated, don't worry, it's really quite simple. Tutankhamun appears as a warrior for Ra. He will slaughter the god's enemies, overthrow his rivals. He will defeat anyone who threatens the sun god. Tutankhamun is Osiris, king of the dead, and he is also Horus, king of the living. In short, the young ruler is an ultimate power, the pharaoh in this world and the next, and he lives forever to protect the great gods. So this first shrine emphasizes protection. Protection for the king, and protection by the king, on behalf of the gods. It is a cool item, and a good introduction to the king's burial chamber. The second shrine is complicated. At first glance, it seems unremarkable. Wood covered with gold and decorated. But for Egyptologists, the structure is fascinating. And in some respects, it is unique. To start, the second shrine has some unusual imagery. For example, one side presents a towering figure, a mummy wearing a wig and beard. This mummy has the face of Tutankhamun. So, to begin, we see Tutankhamun in his eternal form. The mummy faces right towards the doors of the shrine, and it bears a strange symbol. Around the head and feet of the mummy, we find a pair of snakes coiling in circles. The snakes are infinite. When the head circles back to the tail, the snake takes its own tail in its mouth. So the serpent loops around and around in an endless circle. The Egyptians called the snake Mehen, but you might know it better as the Uroburos, a serpent looping on itself with the mouth consuming the tail. This is a symbol for eternity. The infinite loop conveys the idea of time as a never-ending cycle. And in that cycle, the gods bring day, night, life, death, renewal, and decay. All up, the snake emphasizes a particular idea. The gods are eternal. The natural cycle is infinite. All life flows from the divine. So Tutankhamun's shrine bears an image of the Uroburos, the eternal serpent. In the modern world, this kind of symbol might associate Tutankhamun with Jungian psychology, Gnosticism, or the Aes Sedai of the White Tower. Whatever your association, the appearance of Uroburos, Mehen, is a wonderful motif. Other images on the second shrine present aspects of the underworld. We see the sun god travelling through the west, and many deities appear to receive his power. As Ra travels, he renews his energy, preparing for the dawn. 
and the images on this shrine present his glory and his power. I can't describe all of it, unfortunately, and some of the symbols are quite complicated. But you will find images on the website. For now, let's focus on the texts. The second shrine has a variety of hieroglyphs. Some of these come from the Book of the Dead, the famous Egyptian text of the afterlife. But there are others. We also have selections from the pyramid texts, those ancient writings that adorned the halls of Old Kingdom monuments. The pyramid texts emerged around 2300 BCE. Tutankhamun lived around 1300 BCE. So his shrine gives a mix of traditions. And by the time he was king, some of these texts were already ancient. Finally, the second shrine introduces a new text. A book of religious literature appears here for the first time. This book is complicated, and I'll explain it properly another day. But essentially, the shrine gives a new text concerning the unification of Ra and Osiris. It describes the meeting and connection between the sun god and the king of the dead. And it tells how Ra Osiris will renew his power and come forth into the day. Again, the text is complicated. But in the depths of this tomb, the second shrine gave Tutankhamun powerful and new forms of protection. The glories of Ra and Osiris, invigorated in the night, would guard the king and guard creation. There are two more shrines surrounding the king's sarcophagus. I'll cover them quickly because there are a couple of fun details. For example, the third shrine is particularly cool. On the doors, we see images of gods. Four deities with animal heads appear together. They are male, two on each side, and they face towards the center. Each god is different. One is a ram, the second is a crocodile, the third is a lion, and the fourth is maybe a goat. They wear long wigs, and these deities seem to be warriors. The four gods carry large blades or swords in each hand. They march together, protecting the king, and the hieroglyphs record their names. Some really cool names. Quote, The ram god is called Great of Words. The crocodile god is called He Who Repulses the Wicked. The bearded goat is called He Who Brings One to the Fire. And the lion god is called Slaughterhead. End quote. Wow. Imagine being the god called Slaughterhead. First, it gives serious Silent Hill vibes, which is always good. Second, and more importantly, these gods remind us how violent Egyptian religion could be. The land of the dead, the underworld, was not a safe place. There was danger that needed repelling. And sometimes defeating those threats required great violence and bloodshed. These gods, with their terrifying blades, are good examples of that. And their names, like He Who Repulses the Wicked and He Who Brings One to the Fire, drive home the point. Tutankhamun slept in his burial chamber, but the king was not safe. To ensure his immortality, powerful deities would guard the body and the soul from danger. Anyone entering this tomb, mortal or otherwise, should beware. 
great gods were ready to do violence. Finally, the smallest shrine, shrine number four, has some nicer texts. We find Tutankhamun offering prayers to the gods, and in return, the great deities welcome the pharaoh to their world. The gods say things like, quote, We are united to be the protection of the coffin, for Osiris, the king, lord of the two lands, Neb Keperura, Tutankhamun. We do this so that he may make his transformations, so that he may come out whenever his name is called, to receive the gifts in the course of every day. End quote. Evocative stuff. The gods will protect the coffin and the body of the king, and they will guarantee his safety. They do this so that Tutankhamun can live forever, so that any time somebody speaks his name, he can come forth to enjoy the benefits of immortality. It is evocative stuff. We can imagine Tutankhamun travelling into the west, and on his arrival, the all-powerful gods are happy to see him. They will empower the king to live forever, and enjoy a blessed eternity. The four shrines, made of wood and covered with gold, are fascinating. Obviously, they are beautiful, but more importantly, they record complex stories of the ancient Egyptian afterlife. I wish I could tell you every single detail. Sadly, we must move on. If you are interested, there is a book about these shrines, and it is available online for free. Follow the link in the episode description to read Alexander Piankov's book, The Shrines of Tutankhamun. It is available on archive.org, and you can read it there. Once again, follow the link in the description if you are interested. Anyway, one day, late in November 1922, Howard Carter broke a small hole and crept into the burial chamber. He got his first glimpse of the enormous shrines that surrounded Tutankhamun's burial. Unfortunately, Carter could not open these shrines and look inside. There was too much work to do first. Every item in the antechamber and annex would need recording and preservation. And even when they officially opened the burial chamber, the shrines themselves would need to be protected, dismantled, and removed. Then, only then, could the next phase reveal itself. So on that first day of exploration, with candle in hand, Carter could not see what lay beyond the shrines. The room was filled by walls and doors of gold. Behind those walls, well, he would have to wait. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Chapter 7. The Portrait in the West 
If you could stand invisible in Tutankhamun's burial chamber, you would have seen amazing sights. The hall was filled by enormous shrines. The floors were covered in small, miscellaneous objects, some practical for regular use, others symbolic for divine connection. The walls were decorated with beautiful imagery. Everywhere you looked, you would see the provisions of an ancient, immortal traveller. Tutankhamun's burial chamber is not just a hall of treasures. It is a sacred space dedicated to one purpose, to preserve the body of the king. Doing this, the burial chamber could be a home for Tutankhamun's spirit. Wherever it travelled, in this world or the next, the king could return to this place for rest and rejuvenation. The mummy lay secure and protected. The soul could journey far and wide. The burial chamber has two names, depending on context. Sometimes it is called Wesketneti Heteptu Emim. This translates as the hall in which one rests. That's self-explanatory. It's the room where one, the deceased, lies for eternity. Fair enough. The other name, and much cooler in my opinion, was Per En Nebu, the House of Gold. You can imagine why. For powerful rulers, such chambers probably had many items of metal, gems, and high-quality stone. More importantly, the gold was a reference to the gods. In Egyptian religion, gods had flesh made of gold, bones of silver, and hair of lapis lazuli, or blue stone. So the house of gold was not just a physical house with physical gold, it was also a space in which the human became divine. In the burial chamber, a pharaoh left his mortal body and became one with the gods. That sacred power is communicated through names, but also through art. If you visit the chamber today, the main feature is the decoration. Paintings on the walls reveal Tutankhamun's eternal journey. Looking around, we can see his travels and how he became immortal. There are four walls to the chamber, and each one is decorated. There are various scenes related to the king's death and his journey in the next world. I have already described two of these scenes. In episode 152, we saw the funeral procession for the king, high officials dragging the mummy atop a sled to the tomb. That picture appears on the east wall. We also witnessed a painting for the opening of the mouth, the ceremony in which a priest opened the eyes, nose, and mouth of the deceased. We see this on the north wall, in the right-hand corner. There, Tutankhamun stands as a mummy, while a priest, actually his successor, the next king, makes the appropriate gestures. Again, I described all that in episode 152. So, let's explore the other images. Starting with the north wall, there are three scenes in total. The opening of the mouth appears on the right. Then, in the centre, Tutankhamun enters the next world. This time, the king does not appear as a mummy, but a human. He wears a long white kilt, a bare chest, and a short wig. On his shoulders, Tutankhamun has a necklace, and he clutches a tall staff in his right hand. In his left, the king holds a club or mace, and the ankh, the symbol of life. Above him, hieroglyphs record his name, and they say that Tutankhamun is, quote, given life forever and ever. 
So the king has passed from the mortal realm. Now he enters the world of eternity. Tutankhamun is not alone. Standing before him, a goddess offers greeting. This is Nut, the lady of the sky. She wears a long white dress with a red sash around her waist. Her wig is long over the shoulders and back, and she has armbands or bracelets on her biceps and wrists. Nut reaches out, lifting her palms towards the king. In each hand, the goddess holds a hieroglyph, the symbol for water. So Nut comes forth to wash or purify Tutankhamun as he enters the next world. At the start of his journey, the Lady of the Sky is there to greet him. It's quite nice. Finally, we have a third scene. This one is on the far left of the northern wall, and it includes three individuals. First, we have Osiris. The god of the dead appears on the left as a mummy. He is wrapped in a white shroud with a colourful necklace. On his head, Osiris wears a tall crown the white crown, with feathers on either side. His skin is green, suggesting decay or death, but also growth and new life. The god's hands emerge from his shroud, and they reach out to touch the figure before him. That figure? Well, it's Tutankhamun, sort of. In front of Osiris, Tutankhamun appears twice. First, we see him as a king, an individual. He wears a headdress of blue and gold, just like his mummy mask. He has a white kilt with an elaborate belt or apron on the front. His chest is bare, and he reaches out to hug or embrace the mummy of Osiris. The king of the dead and the king of Egypt greet each other like family, which, in a sense, they are. Osiris, the eternal king, was the father of Horus, the living king. So, as Tutankhamun enters the next world, he greets his father with a hug. How sweet. Behind Tutankhamun, just to the right, we see another figure. This one is Tutankhamun once again, but he appears in a slightly different form. This other Tutankhamun looks older. He has wrinkles in his neck, and he wears a distinctive costume. The figure has a long wig hanging down the shoulders and the back. And atop his head, there is a strange symbol, a pair of arms stretching out to either side. The arms bend at the elbow, rising vertically, so the hands point up. This symbol is the ka, the spirit or essence of a human. Between these arms, the ka holds a box decorated with animals. We see a bull, another symbol for the car, and on top, a falcon bird, or hawk. This is Horus, the eternal king. Finally, there is a golden serpent, the Uraeus, another symbol for kingship. What does all of this mean? Well, as Tutankhamun embraces Osiris, he is accompanied by a spirit, the car spirit, the essence and vitality. This car seems to be the car of kingship. It is the embodiment of royal power and strength. The Ka of kingship was a force that inhabited every single pharaoh. It had existed since the first rulers, and it would continue as long as Egypt had a monarch. The Ka was the life force that gave Tutankhamun royal power. Now, it accompanied him to the next world. 
So the young pharaoh went to the afterlife with the very essence of kingly strength as his companion. With the royal car, the car of kingship, Tutankhamun could join the deities. He could embrace his father and enter the kingdom of Osiris. He was becoming a god. This may sound complicated, but let me break it all down. On the north wall, we have three scenes. First, the king, as a mummy, receives the opening of the mouth. Then, Tutankhamun, as a human, enters the world of the gods. He meets Nut, the sky goddess, who greets him and purifies him. Finally, Tutankhamun enters the world of Osiris, the king of the dead. He embraces his father, and Tutankhamun is accompanied by a symbol, the royal car, the spirit that empowers the king. That car had animated every ruler since the dawn of time. It was eternal. Now, it came with Tutankhamun as he left the mortal realm. Basically, the north wall of the burial chamber shows Tutankhamun's journey in its essential chapters. He leaves this world, ascends to the sky, and then enters the afterlife. On this wall, the king's transformation is summarized, condensed to its basic features. You must give the artists credit for efficiency. So the north wall tells a multi-stage journey, and it may sound complicated. The next wall is a bit simpler, visually. If you turn left towards the west, you will see a grid. This wall is divided into rectangles. Fourteen of them. There are two large rectangles at the top, and twelve smaller rectangles on the bottom. These scenes come from a religious text, a book that we have encountered before. Its ancient name was the Book of the Hidden Chamber, but we generally know it as the Book of Amduat, or that which is in the underworld. The Amduat is an important text. It appears in the 18th dynasty, and it describes the journey of Ra, the sun god, through the world of the dead. At night, Ra crosses the western horizon and travels through the world beyond. Along the way, he encounters dangerous beings and kindly friends. At the end of his journey, Ra emerges into the dawn, and the cycle of life begins again. It is a significant text. Tutankhamun's Amduat is short, condensed. This introduces the underworld and the twelve hours of night that Ra must traverse. It shows some of the gods who will help him, and it shows the hours he must cross, along with their guardians. It's a really brief version of the Amduat text. Very quickly, let's explore. At the top of this wall, on the left, we see a boat. It contains three figures, two gods and a beetle. The beetle is Ra, in his form Kepri. The beetle carries the power of the sun, and he will bring it forth at dawn. So the beetle references the completion of Ra's nightly voyage. At the very start of this wall, we see a brief summary of the god's journey. Because he appears as the beetle, we know he will be okay. Below that, we see twelve smaller rectangles. Inside each one, there is a baboon squatting on the ground. These twelve baboons, in their twelve rectangles, represent the twelve hours of night. As the sun makes his journey to the next world, he must pass through each hour one by one. 
The baboons guard and identify these hours. And so the wall gives a sort of map for the sun god's journey. The Amduat for Tutankhamun is brief, just a summary or introduction. But it does the job. It conveys the essentials. Twelve hours of night, Ra in his boat, and the sun god's appearance as Kepri. The artists have kept the basics of the religious text. With a limited space to work, they have summarised a complicated book in a single, functional space. Again, they did pretty well in the circumstances. Finally, we have the south wall. This one is damaged, for reasons I'll explain in a moment, but we know the gist of it. For the most part, the south wall is a parallel to the north. They both show Tutankhamun entering the world of the gods, the world of the dead. But the northern wall focuses on Tutankhamun and Osiris. Here, we get a different focus. Again, very quickly, let's explore. If you look at the south wall, you will see four main figures. In the centre, we have Tutankhamun. He wears a kilt, a belt, a fancy apron, and a white headdress. On his brow, the golden serpent, or Uraeus, protects him. He is calm, almost smiling, which makes sense. Tutankhamun has entered the realm of the gods. He is coming home, in a sense. In front of the king, on the right, we have a goddess, Hathor, or Huther, the lady of the west, the mother and guardian of Horus. She reaches out to place an ankh, or life, at the nose of Tutankhamun. So Hathor gives life to the king, offering him breath and eternity. Behind Tutankhamun, on the left, we have Anubis, or Anpu. He appears as a man with the head of a canine, maybe a jackal, maybe a wolf. His kilt is gold and white, his wig is long over his shoulders and back. Like Hathor, Anubis reaches out with one hand. This time, the god touches Tutankhamun on the shoulder, as if he is guiding, protecting, or affectionately welcoming the king. Behind Anubis, on the left, there used to be another set of figures. Unfortunately, this part of the wall was not the natural stone of the valley. It was an artificial wall that divided the burial chamber and the first chamber. So unfortunately, this wall had to be demolished when archaeologists removed items from the tomb. Of course, they documented the images fully, so we know what they were. Originally, the south wall showed a figure of Isis, Aset. The goddess stood behind Anubis, and she acted similar to Nut on the northern wall. Isis reached out with both hands to present water for the king, so Isis offered to purify Tutankhamun as he continued his journey. The figure was beautiful, apparently, but she is lost now, which is a shame. Behind Isis, there were three more figures. These were smaller, a set of gods kneeling or squatting on the ground. They appeared in a line, one above the other, and in front of them, hieroglyphs named these gods as, quote, Necher Nefer, Neb Duat. In other words, they were the good god, the lord of the Duat, or underworld. These figures were the last images on the walls of the burial chamber. Today, they are gone. But once upon a time, the lords of the Duat watched Tutankhamun's journey. 
And if you followed the scenes around from beginning to end, they were the last point, the full stop on the decoration. With that, the paintings come to their end. We can finish our tour and bring it all together. We have seen many images on the walls of the burial chamber. What do they mean? What is the point of all this? Traditionally, a royal tomb would have many paintings, many chambers, many corridors, with elaborate decoration. In a normal tomb, we would see the king making offerings to the gods. We would see religious texts, like the Amduat and the Book of the Dead, and they would appear in great detail. The edges of the walls would include beautiful decorations, borders of shapes and symbols, and the ceilings would present a sky of deep blue adorned with golden stars. Traditionally, the royal tombs were like art galleries. They conveyed important and beautiful information on every available surface. Tutankhamun has none of that. When he died, his tomb was unfinished, so the king went into a different, makeshift monument. That tomb was much smaller, much simpler than a normal royal burial. The royal sculptors could make it work, barely, but the sudden change, the unexpected shift to a new monument, that left the masons with a tight deadline. As a result, the king has just a few chambers, far fewer than normal. That affected the art as well. The people who decorated Tutankhamun's burial chamber had a difficult job. First, they had limited space. Whoever designed these images, whoever drew up the plans, they had to fit as much as possible into a small area. The king would need certain imagery like the Amduat, and he would need symbols of great gods to protect him. So the project leader was required to plan something effective but efficient. They had four walls and nothing more to convey the king's journey. With that in mind, we can understand why things seem brief. What about the artists themselves, the ones who painted the burial chamber? Well, their job was even tougher. Apparently, the royal painters had to work in seriously difficult conditions. You see, these artists had to wait until the burial itself was completed. The king's burial chamber had four walls, but one of those walls, on the south, was artificial. Bricks added later to close the room. Unfortunately, that southern wall could not be finished until everything else was in place. That means the mummy, the coffins, the sarcophagus, and the shrines were in the burial chamber before that wall went up. So the painters had to wait until the job was done. Then, only then, they could decorate. Because the burial was complete, the artists had to work in a confined space. The golden shrines filled most of the burial chamber, leaving a tiny gap between the gold and the wall. So the painters had to stand in a cramped area, just a couple of feet wide. They had to plan the scenes, line everything up, draw the outlines, colour the backgrounds, fill in the details, and add the hieroglyphs. They did all of this in a narrow space, and in the dark. They only had small candles to light their way, and with those enormous shrines in the room, 
the light was confined to small areas, and as they worked, those artists had to avoid damaging the shrines at their back. On top of that, they probably had to work quickly, perhaps a few hours, or a night at most, to finish everything off. So the painters had to work in haste, and the marks of that speed were in the tomb. On the floor, plaster had dripped and splattered, and on the ceiling, one corner was blackened by soot. The lamps, burning oil, left their mark on the roof, and there was no time to clean it off. So today, the tomb seems a little bit like a work in progress, as if the people simply stopped and left without cleaning. With that in mind, you can see why the burial chamber appears simple or brief. The painters worked in cramped conditions with limited light and minimal time. In the modern world, you might call this a crunch situation. Tight deadline, working round the clock, and no opportunity for errors. In that sense, it is a miracle that the paintings work at all. This could easily have been a disaster. The decoration of Tutankhamun's burial chamber is not perfect, but it did the job. And in the circumstances, maybe that was the best they could hope for. When the painters laid down their brushes, the king had a functional set of images. Tutankhamun could rest, protected by deities, with religious texts to guide his way. It wasn't outstanding, but it was better than nothing. Tutankhamun slept in a golden hall, the Per-en-Nebu. His golden shrines protected the sarcophagus, and paintings on the walls protected the shrines. As Tutankhamun lay in the dark, artistic scenes recorded his journey. The king would leave this world and travel to the sky, the world of the gods. Powerful goddesses like Nut and Isis would cleanse him, washing away impurities and protectors like Hathor and Anubis would greet him, offering life and protection for his soul. And eventually, Tutankhamun would reach the kingdom of Osiris. In the land of the dead, he would embrace Osiris as his father, and Tutankhamun would enjoy the company of the royal Ka. The spirit of kingship, eternal, would guide him on his way. In the end, Tutankhamun would take his place with Osiris, with Ra, and with all the gods. On earth, his body would sleep. In the next world, Tutankhamun would enjoy a new status. He would be divine, and he would rule forever. In certain respects, Tutankhamun's tomb is lacking. The architecture is compressed, the decoration is rushed, and the quality of the work can sometimes be hit or miss. But, to be fair, these issues may not have been a serious problem. Today, we tend to imagine royal tombs as magnificent, perfect structures. And that can be true, sometimes. But there are plenty of royal monuments where the design and decoration is unfinished. Even mighty pharaohs who reigned for decades can have tombs that are mostly done, but not quite. As for the architecture, well... Even a small, cramped tomb was not necessarily a problem. Again, we often imagine that these monuments follow a specific pattern, as if they are cookie-cutter working from a template. In truth, it is quite the opposite. In the Valley of the Kings, 
there are 24 royal tombs. Surprisingly, each one of these is unique. The royal tombs are not identical. Every single one has idiosyncrasies. They have different layouts, different chambers, different texts, different images. Certainly there are patterns overall. But as far as we can tell, the ancients did not work from a single, rigid idea of what the royal tomb should be. With every monument, they modified, adapted, innovated, and improvised. In the process, the masons and artists created a wonderful variety of designs and decorations. What this means is that the tomb of Tutankhamun is unusual, but not that unusual, really. Yes, it is small, and it's missing certain rooms. But for the ancients, that may not have been a terrible issue. The tomb still had the essential features. A burial chamber, sarcophagus, shrines, and paintings. The decoration was brief, kind of basic, but it did the job. And overall, the king had the necessary details. Tutankhamun could sleep, protected, in his hall. It was not a fabulous hall, but it would do the job. Ironically, Tutankhamun's brief and condensed tomb proved more effective than any other. Even if the artists had to rush, if the architects were unable to build every feature they wanted, that ultimately benefited the king. With a tiny monument hidden away, Tutankhamun's burial lasted far longer than any other. His ancestors and heirs may have built enormous, multi-chambered tombs, but those grandiose monuments were just easier to identify and loot. In the end, Tutankhamun, in his tiny monument, outlasted them all. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.